Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I grew up knowing that the empty seat at our Thanksgiving table belonged to my grandfather. A violent altercation on a trip a long time ago. No one knew if they were officially members of the clan, but that didn't change the fact I never got to meet him. Just black man down, bow your head, pay your respects. Maybe that's why I loved him so fiercely. The old folks told me that I shared his respect for words, that my stride down the street mirrored his to the T, that I should know my large forehead was borrowed him, my hero, the ghost. Then I asked my grandmother for the thousandth time to tell me about her husband. And I don't know why she finally said what she said then. I don't. She and I, alone in the room she went to die, she told me that my grandfather was a bad man that treated her in a bad way. And she thought there was no greater evil in all the world until that band of devils met him on the side of a southern highway. No, Granny. And gave him what he didn't quite deserve. No, Granny. Not because of his evil, Granny. But because he a light-skinned black man, almost but not quite white, stopped in exactly the wrong place to ask for help for his flat tire. Granny. Granny. She never spoke about it again. Never spoke on this side of the veil. And I never stopped thinking, imagining who my hero really was, who he was really. That night he stepped out of his car and met the clan. Well, today on Snap Judgment, we're not going to break down on the side of the road. No, 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 no. But from a nice cocoon of radio safety, we're going to look this horror in the eye. Snap Judgment proudly presents The Clan. Amazing stories from real people dealing with some of the oldest hate we have. My name is Glenn Washington. Now you know I can't even wear bathrobes when you're listening to Snap Judgment.
there is a movie you might have heard of it. It's based on a true story. It's got the Spike Lee, big stars, all of them. But this Snapchat special you are listening to right now, this is not based on a true story. No, Snapchat, no. This is the true story. Strap in a very special snap, the story behind the story. Behind the story. We're calling it The Real Black Klansman. I can't wait for you to find out why, fair warning, this piece does reference words for minorities that one should never, ever use. Kids, even if these terms are used at the highest levels of government, it's still not cool. I snap judgment. I'm not a uniform type of guy. Some guys love the spit and polish of a uniform. I loved wearing the uniform when I did, and I wore it very proudly. It's just that my motivation was to be an undercover cop. Back in those days, I went to the discos a lot, mixing and mingling with the public, and, and yet I was a cop. I loved the fact that I could walk around in public wearing a big afro, wearing platform shoes, wearing my tight pants, uh, John Travolta style in Saturday Night Fever. Setting, mid-70s Colorado Springs Police Department, and Ron Stallworth is the youngest detective and the first black detective in the history of a station. One time I was undercover buying cocaine. We were talking and whatnot, and I asked him, don't you ever get nervous selling this stuff, you know? He said, I can always tell when I'm selling to a cop. I said, how can you tell that? He said, by the way they smell. How do you know I'm not a cop? He said, yeah, you don't smell like a cop. If you were a cop, I'd kill you right now. Well, thank God I'm not a cop. We both sat in the car and we chuckled and, you know, we went our separate ways. About a week later, I bought some more cocaine off of him. And a week after that, I bought some more and then we busted him. And as we busted him, I walked up to him and he said, you mother and... I said, yeah, you didn't smell this one. See, Ron is I gotta have the last word kind of guy. His motto is the criminal should never get the last word. And after two years in the narcotics department, they move Ron to vice and intelligence. On one particular day, I noticed a uh, newspaper ad in the classified sections that said Ku Klux Klan for information. And then there was a P.O. box so I answered the P.O. box uh, with a letter. I wrote a letter pretending to be a white racist, and I basically said that I hated all, uh, and I, I used the actual terms, that I hated nigger spicks, Jews, chinks, wops. I hate the fact that they are taking over our country, and I wanted to be part of a group that was stood up for uh, the rights of uh, white Americans. I thought, if anything, I would get a, uh, a leaflet, a flyer in the mail, but not a, uh, any response beyond that. I signed Ron Stallworth, and then I put it in, uh, this letter in an envelope and mailed it off and uh, forgot about it. Approximately a uh, week to 10 days, and I get a phone call on my undercover phone line from Ken, the local organizer for the new chapter of the KKK. When I answered the phone, I was surprised to hear him uh, ask to speak to Ron Stallworth. That's when I realized uh, that I had made a mistake by signing that letter with my real name. Why did I do that? 
the only answer I can offer is that I wasn't thinking. I, I had a brain cramp that particular day. But I quickly regrouped by telling him that I wanted to join the KKK uh, because I wanted to retake our country. And then I added a little spice to it by telling him that my sister had uh, recently been dating a, a and every time he put his filthy black hands on her pure white body, it made my skin crawl. I wanted to do something that put a stop to this race mixing. And when I said that, his response to me was, you're just the kind of guy we want. When can we meet? Obviously, I couldn't meet with him because, uh, my, quite frankly, my beautiful ebony skin. So I give him my physical description, minus skin color, my height, my weight. The description I actually gave him was, in fact, mine, but it also matched uh, one of the white detectives in the uh, narcotics division who uh, was a good friend of mine, and he went by the name of Chuck. After the phone call, Ron recruits Chuck, a.k.a. White Ron Stallworth, to attend the Klansman meeting he was just invited to. They had a chance to send in an undercover mole. Although there's one thing to note, tonally, Ron and Chuck sound completely different. Not like a black guy and a white guy, but like two different guys. But the undercover plan, it's already in motion. So they just hope for the best when it comes time for white Ron Stallworth to meet Ken, the local head of the KKK. It turned out Ken and uh, most of the Klan members were soldiers stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado. They were meeting at a bar called the Corner Pocket Lounge. He drove there. We followed him there. In preparation for this meeting, I strapped on a wireless transmitter to Chuck's body. The meeting goes very well. The Klansmen, they really like Chuck. Surprisingly, there was no indication on the part of Ken that my voice and Chuck's voice were different. They give Chuck some Klan newspapers, invite him to cross burnings, and they show him their guns that they're carrying illegally. The Klan chapter's also all riled up for a big upcoming event. David Duke, the Grand Wizard, was planning on coming to Colorado Springs to recruit new members. Uh, It was a very big deal for a Grand Wizard to come uh, visit a local community. To put it into context, picture President Obama coming to Colorado Springs to hold a rally. For Klan members, that's how big a deal it is. One of the things they wanted to do to honor him and to send a message out to the local communities, they wanted to get 100 Klansmen in their white robes marching down Colorado Springs. White Ron Stallworth attends the meeting for about an hour, and after he returns, the real Ron Stallworth has some questions for Ken, the local head of the KKK. So Ron calls Ken up. And he said, what's the matter with you? You sound different. And I coughed for a couple of seconds and, (coughs) oh, Ken, I have a sinus infection. And he said, oh, I get those all the time. Here's what you need to do to take care of that. Over the next few months, Black Ron Stallworth earns respect and rapport of the Grand Wizard, David Duke, and Grand Dragon, Fred Wilkins. He's a dedicated Klan member, of course. His work is all over the phone. And while Black Ron Stallworth is pulling the strings, White Ron Stallworth attends the meetings. Together, they stop about three illegal cross burnings. But still... Up ahead, there's a Grand Dragon's visit and the Robe March. 
When that day finally arrives, the police department is taxed. Every available officer is working the streets, along with the white Ron Stallworth going undercover. On that morning, of, uh, I got called into the police chief's office and basically was told that I was going to be assigned to be uh, David Duke's bodyguard. The police department had been getting death threats against David Duke, and the chief said he didn't want anything happening to David Duke as long as he was in Colorado Springs. I protested against the chief's order. The chief said he understood that, but he was willing to risk it for the sake of keeping David Duke alive, and we were were short of manpower, and I was the only one available. Well, I protested, but he insisted on uh, ailing it happening, and I saluted, said yes, sir, and obeyed his order. David Duke's first stop that day is lunch at a steakhouse. So Ron heads over, and this is what's about to go down. Inside the restaurant, Ron is going to be protecting the national leader of the KKK, the state leader of the KKK, the local leader of the KKK, all of whom he had weekly contact with over the phone. Chuck, the undercover white Ron Stallworth, is also there among all the other Klan members. Chuck did not know I was coming and was surprised to see me when I finally got there. And I gave him a nonverbal signal that everything was okay and uh, proceeded to introduce myself to David Duke. They were curious as to why I was there. I just introduced myself as a detective from the police department and that we had received death threats against Mr. Duke. And I told him, I do not believe in your political or ideological philosophy but I am a professional, and as long as you're in my town, I will do everything within my means to keep you safe. He thanked me. I shook their hands. They were all smiles because he was being recognized as a man of importance. Once I realized that uh, they didn't recognize my voice, I started having fun playing with them. I had a Polaroid camera with me, and I gave the camera to Chuck the white Ron Stallworth. And I said, Mr. Duke, nobody will believe me if I tell them that I was your bodyguard. Would you mind taking a picture with me? He said, no, not at all. So again, I gave the camera to Chuck and I stood beside David Duke on my right. And then I asked the Grand Dragon if he would get in the picture with me and stand on my left. And he said, sure. Then I put my arm on both of their shoulders. And Duke pushed my arm away from him. He said, I'm sorry, but I can't appear in a photo with you like that. I can only speculate that he didn't want it to be seen in public where a black man had his arm around him looking like uh, they were chummy chummy. So I said, I I understand, Mr. Duke. I said, excuse me for a second. And then I walked over to Chuck and pretended like there was something that I needed to discuss with him regarding the operation of the camera. And I whispered to Chuck, on the count of three, snap the photo. And then I went back and I stood between the two of them, the Grand Dragon on my left and David Duke, the Grand uh, Wizard on my right. I stood between the two of them with my hands down by my uh, waist area. And I said, one, two, and on the count of three, I raised my arm and put them back on the shoulders of the two men. And on the count of three, Chuck snapped the photo. When Chuck snapped the photo, David Duke bolted away from me towards Chuck and tried to grab the camera out of Chuck's hand. I was a split second faster than Duke. I actually grabbed the camera from my Chuck. 
Duke tried to snatch the camera out of my hand, and when he tried to snatch it out of my hand, I told Duke, if you touch me, I will arrest you for assault on a police officer, and I'll throw you in jail, and that's worth five years in prison. Don't do it. Duke looked at me and gave me the most intense, hardest, filthiest look you could possibly imagine. All of the smiles that had been in the room before stopped. And everybody stared at me with intense look of hatred on their face. It seemed like forever, but it probably was only no more than maybe five, six seconds. And then he backed off. Because at that precise moment, I was their worst nightmare. I was a with a gun. with a badge and a gun. And fortunately for him, he backed off. And for the rest of his stay in Colorado Springs, he didn't say one word to me. Believe it or not, I called David Duke up three days after this event happened and spoke to him on the phone and asked him how he liked Colorado Springs. And, well, did anything unusual happen? He said, oh, I had an encounter with this cop. I said, really, what happened? Yeah. Big thanks to the one and only Ron Stallworth for sharing his story with Snap Judgment. Ron, you are welcome to the Washington household anytime for a holiday dinner. Just let me know. The movie Black Klansman, inspired by Ron, directed by Spike Lee, is out. Go see it. The original score for this piece was written and performed by Davy Kim. It was produced by none other than Davy Triple Threat Kim. When Snap Judgment the Clan episode continues, somebody is locked and loaded. All this and so much more in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Clan episode. Now, our next story starts off in Maryland, where our own Nick Vanderkolk talked to a man by the name of Daryl Davis. It's an amazing story, but it does use a term that people should not use for other people. It starts with an N, Snap Judgment. In 1983, country music had made a resurgence in this country. So I joined a country band. I was the only black guy in the band, and consequently, usually the only black guy in many of the places where we played. Well, there was this truck stop in a place called Frederick, Maryland. Truck stop had a motel. In the bottom of the motel was this lounge called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And it was basically an all-white lounge. Black people did not go in there. First time I played there, I came off the bandstand after the first set, and I was walking across the dance floor to sit with some of my bandmates. And this white gentleman, probably in his mid to late 40s, gets up from his table and walks across the bandstand from behind, puts his arm around my shoulder. And I stopped and turned around and looked to see who's touching me. And he says, I really like your all's music. You know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I had no idea where this guy was coming from. And I naively and innocently asked him, where did you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? 
And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, Jerry Lee learned how to play that style from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rockabilly and rock and roll came from. Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry Lee invented that. I never heard no black man play like that until you. I even told the guy, I know Jerry Lee Lewis personally. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him since I was 13 years old. He's told me himself where he learned how to play, or the guy didn't buy it. But he was fascinated with me, and he wanted to buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink, but I agreed to go back to his table and have a cranberry juice. He says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy is really having a night of firsts here. I asked him, I said, why? And he didn't answer me. He stared at the tabletop. And his buddy elbowed him in the ribs and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And uh, he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I started laughing. I figure, okay, this guy thinks I'm jerking him around about Jerry Lee Lewis, so he's gonna jerk me around about the Klan. While I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his Klan card. His looked like it had a uh, Klansman on horseback, and then on the other side was this red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center, which is the Ku Klux Klan insignia. It's called a Mayoke, or blood drop emblem. I stopped laughing, because I recognize that stuff. You know, this is for real. So now I'm wondering, what the hell am I doing sitting at a table with a Klansman? And I gave him back his card, and we talked about some other things. The guy gave me his phone number. He wanted me to call him anytime I was to come back to this bar with this band, because he wanted to bring his buddies, right? His, his clan buddies, to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. We were on a rotation at that club every six weeks, you know, with other bands. So I called the guy like on a Wednesday or Thursday and said, hey man, um, I'm gonna be at the uh, Silver Dollar, come on out. He'd come and he'd bring his clansmen and clanswomen friends and they'd gather around and watch me play. They'd get out there on the dance floor and dance. There were some who didn't want to meet me, you know, they were kind of standoffish, just like, you know, watch me from afar, but I knew it was them. Others, you know, were, were curious and wanted to, you know, I mean, they shook my hand and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, this went on about every six weeks until the end of 83, at which time um, I quit the clan. I mean, I quit the clan. I quit the band. <laughs> Get that right. Freudian slip there. Okay. <laughs> um, I quit the band and I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and, you know, whatever genre was popular in 84. And so, you know, I lost contact with the guy. Music is my profession, but learning more about racism on, on all sides of the tracks was my obsession. I began collecting everything I could get my hands on that dealt with white supremacy, black supremacy, anti-Semitism, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, things like that. It was incomprehensible to me that someone who had never seen me before, someone who knew absolutely nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. They didn't know anything about me. I hadn't done anything. And the question that I had back then was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That question stayed with me. 
eight years later, I decided I want an answer to my question. So I'm gonna interview all these racists. I need to write a book. So I chose the Klan because man, I could have chose, you know, the Nazis, but I had made some kind of relationship with this Klansman. So I'm gonna track down that Klansman from the Silver Dollar Lounge. He had moved. He did not have a phone, but he had an address. So unannounced, I went by his apartment one evening, okay? I knock on the door, right? In this hallway. And um, he opens the door. He says, Daryl, what are you doing here? And he steps out into the hallway and looks up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me, right? Well, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, he comes back in. He goes, what's going on, man? Are you still playing? What's going on? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing, man. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. I said, you remember, right? He goes, well, I was. He said he'd quit and he went into this long story. Well, I said, where's all your Klan stuff? And he says, well, they came and got it. Apparently, he had not paid off his robe and hood and they came and repoed it. And I said, do you know Roger Kelly? Yeah, I know Roger. Roger was my grand dragon. In their terminology, they called the state leader the grand dragon. I asked him to hook me up with the Grand Dragon. And he said, no, he couldn't do that. And I said, but wait a minute, you, you know, you're, you're out of the clan now. He goes, it doesn't matter, Daryl. Well, I begged and pleaded with him to give me Mr. Kelly's uh, information. Well, 20 minutes later, he finally consented to giving it to me on the condition that I not reveal to Mr. Kelly where I got his home address and his home phone number. He warned me, he said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Uh, Roger Kelly will kill you. I called my secretary who booked my band. Mary worked here out of my house. I said, here, give uh, Roger Kelly a call and tell him you're working for somebody who's writing a book on the Klan. Would he consent to sitting down and being interviewed? Do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm black. Unless he asks. If he asks, don't lie to him. But don't allude to it. Don't give him any reason to ask. And so um, I had her call, and um, he agreed. We set up the meeting for the motel right above the Silver Dollar Lounge, and at 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon, Mary and I got there early. I gave Mary some money, and I sent her down the hall to get some soda and put it in the ice bucket so I would be able to offer my guest a beverage. I had no idea what this man was going to do when he saw me. You know, was he going to freak and attack me because I'm black? Was he going to say, I'm not talking to you and turn around and leave? Or was he going to come in and be interviewed like he had agreed to do? I was not armed. My secretary was not armed. Right on time, knock, knock, knock on the door. Mary hops up, runs around the corner, and opens the door. In walks the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk in clan terminology means bodyguard. He's wearing military camouflage fatigues, the Ku Klux Klan insignia, and on his right hip, he had a gun. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind this guy in a dark blue suit. The Nighthawk turns the corner, and upon seeing me, he freezes instantly. Mr. Uh, Kelly bumped into his back, and they stumbled around, you know, trying to regain their balance, looking all over the room like, uh-uh. Something's wrong here. I get up and I walk over. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. Put my hand out. 
My name is Daryl Davis. He shook my hand. So far, so good. I said, come on in, come on in. The Nighthawk shook my hand. Mr. Kelly sat down. I'm like, I'm like yes, you know, he's going to do it. And the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right. Right before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly says to me, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? And I said, yes. And I reached into my wallet and pulled out my driver's license and gave it to him. And he says, oh, you live on uh, Flax Street in Silver Spring. Well, now that had me a little concerned. Why is this man reciting my street address? He doesn't need to know that. I don't need him coming here burning across on my lawn. I didn't want to let him know that he had, you know, slightly unnerved me or rattled me. But I, but I want to let him know that, you know, don't screw around. So I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at, and I named his house number and his street. We started doing the interview. And everything, you know, was going along smooth. I mean, every now and then, somebody might pound the table with their fists to make a point. Every time Mr. Kelly would say, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, you know, I'd reach down into my bag and pull out the Bible and hand it to him to show me where it said blacks and whites had to be separate. Or if my cassette ran out of tape, I'd reach down into the bag and pull out my cassette and, and refresh the, uh, the recorder. Every time I reached down, the Nighthawk would reach up to his gun. A little over an hour into this interview, there was a strange noise, kind of like I immediately jumped up out of my chair and slammed my hands on the table. My mind was racing like you know, 90 miles an hour trying to think, what did I just say? What did I just do to cause him to go off and make some weird noise? And all I could hear in the back of my head was, that former Klansman saying, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly will kill you, all right? So I didn't want to die that day, and I'm getting ready to come across that table, grab the Nighthawk and Mr. Kelly, and slam them both down to the ground and disarm the Nighthawk. My eyes locked with Roger Kelly's eyes. My eyes were clearly saying, what did you just do? And I could read his eyes, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun looking back and forth between both of us, like, what did either one of y'all just do? Mary, she was over here sitting on top of the dresser. She realized what happened. And then it made that same noise again. Some of the ice cubes in the ice container melted, the ice bucket melted, and the cans of soda shifted. We all began laughing at how ignorant we were. We continued with the interview and there were no more problems. Uh, at the end, I shook their hands and thanked them for their time. And Mr. Kelly gave me uh, one of his clan cards. And um, he said, keep in touch. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't say it, but I was thinking to myself, what? You know, I didn't come here to make friends with the clan. I came here to find out, you know, how can you hate me when you don't know me? And he didn't like me, I mean, he told me as much. On the way back home, I said to Mary in my car, I said, you know, I rather like Roger Kelly. I like him as a person. I do not like what Roger Kelly stands for. But I found that 
we had more in common than we did in contrast. Basically, what we had in contrast was how we each felt about race. Other than that, we agreed on, on, on a lot of things in common. We need to get drugs off the street. We need better education for kids. Things like that, you know, we can agree upon. So whenever I had a gig up in his county, I'd call him and say, hey man, I'm playing here or playing there. Come on out. He'd come. He'd bring the Nighthawk with him, but he'd come. Sometimes I would invite him down here. He'd come down here. He'd sit right over there on the couch. Sometimes I would invite over some of my Jewish friends, some of my black friends, some of my other white friends, just to engage Mr. Kelly in conversation with somebody other than me. I didn't want him to think that I was some exception. I wanted him to talk to other people. After a while, he began coming down here by himself. No Nighthawk. He trusted me that much, all right? After a couple years, he became uh, Imperial Wizard. He was elevated from state leader to national leader. Imperial Wizard. He began inviting me to his house. Welcome to this final hour of CNN Sunday Morning. Friendship can transcend all kinds of boundaries. Just look at us. And two men in Washington area are showing that even an African-American man and a member of the Ku Klux Klan can find common ground. CNN's Carl Rochelle reports. Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers all out right. there. We get to know one another and we do different things, you know. it's. It hasn't changed my views about the Klan, you know, because my views on the Klan's been pretty much cemented in my mind for years. And I believe in separation of the races. I believe that's in the best interest of all races. I'm a far right man to hell and back, because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle. CNN Sunday morning. If you have an adversary, an opponent with an opposing point of view, give that person a platform, regardless of how extreme it may be. And believe me, I've heard some things so extreme at these rallies, they'll cut you to the bone. If you agree with them, great, no problem. If you don't agree with them, that's fine too. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another. Over a period of time, that cement that he talked about that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. And then it fell apart. And then a few years ago, Roger Kelly quit the Ku Klux Klan. He no longer believes today what he said on that videotape, okay? And when, when he quit the Klan, he gave me his robe and hood. This is the robe of the Imperial wow. Wizard. When the three Klan leaders here in Maryland, Robert White, Roger Kelly, and Chester Doles, and I became friends with each one of them, when the three Klan leaders here in Maryland left the Klan and became friends of mine, that ended the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Today, there is no more Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. They've tried to revive it every now and then, but it immediately falls apart. 
do you think there's a danger at all that there's some sort of like tacit approval happening that he can sort of point to you and be like, hey, this black guy, we're cool, so therefore my separatist beliefs are right? Some of them might feel that way. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I know where I stand, and I never let it, you know, you know, let it be be questioned. Right. I mean, they know that I do not, I do not approve of uh, of separatism or supremacy or whatever. But um, I have no problem sitting there, you know, shaking their hands. I maintain my beliefs. Have you ever gotten criticism from black folks? Or uh, black of course, people? absolutely. Now, you know, black people who are friends of mine who know me understand where I'm coming from. Some black people who have not uh, heard me interviewed or, or who have not read my book, some of them jump to conclusions and prejudge me, just like the Klan. You know, I've been called Uncle Tom. I've been called an Oreo. Uh, I had one guy from an NAACP branch chew me up one side and down the other saying, you know, we've worked hard to get 10 steps forward. Here you are sitting down with the enemy having dinner, and you're putting us 20 steps back. I pull up my robes and hoods and say, look, this is what I've done to put a dent in racism. I've got robes and hoods hanging in my closet by people who've given up that belief because of my conversations of sitting down to dinner and, and they gave it up. How many robes and hoods have you collected? And then they shut up. Thank you, Dale Davis. And you know that we love a diversity of opinion on the snap. We do. But, but if you ever, 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 ever see me up on the stage with anybody from the clan, the alt-white, the neo-whatever they want to call themselves, understand I have been kidnapped. Call the authorities at once. Ask them to send help to come get your boy. All right? Now, Dale, he wrote a book about his experiences called Clandestine Relationships. There's a new movie coming out about Daryl called Accidental Courtesy later this year. The original sound design for that story was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Nick Vanderkolk, who now produces the Love and Radio podcast. And Nick has an update to this story about Daryl Davis at Love and Radio. You can check it out at Love and Radio, wherever you get your podcast. Now, it's about that time. But if you need more stories in your life, we understand, Snappers. Just subscribe to the amazing Snap Judgment Podcast, where we like to say it is almost, almost impossible to hate someone if you know their story. And we have hours, hours of stories awaiting your listening pleasure, all available right now at snapjudgment.org. Look behind the scenes at Snap on our Instagram. It's at snapjudgmentradio.com. You can follow me on Twitter and I'll tell you what I really think. Ooh, and we got big news, Snappers. Big, 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 big news. Because this year, Halloween comes early. March, Friday the 13th, spooked the brand new season. Only on Luminary, get it while you can, spooked. Stories from real people battling the forces of darkness. Be afraid. Snap was produced by the team that would take the clan out in a fight. We'll start off with one punch from the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Karate Chop from Pat McCity Miller. Anna Sussman throws knives. Joe Rosenberg throws flowers. Davey Kim took off his boxing gloves. Nancy Lopez put hers on. 
Elijah Smith wants to talk it out. Don't eat whatever Adiza Egan, Liz Mack, and Leon Morimoto cooked up. And Jasmine Aguilera, she's nonviolent. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, if you hear a black dude that looks like a white dude, that sounds like a black dude, don't just get confused because you would still, even then, not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is W. N-Y-C.